Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning, guests and friends. We're so thankful that you are here with us this morning. I invite you, if you have your Bible, to go ahead and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll be there in just a, just a few minutes. I hope that you all are, are doing well this morning. Happy Resurrection Day to everyone. As we just prayed, Sunday has come once more, and each Sunday is a clear reminder of, for all of those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important event in all of history. The crucifixion, the resurrection was not just another important thing that happened or just another thing that happened in history, but the crucifixion and the resurrection truly changed everything. It changed all of history. It changed the trajectory of the entire world. But more importantly, the resurrection marks the beginning of the new covenant, which means the way in which humanity relates to God, the way that humanity is saved, is not through the law and by our works, which we could never do, which, which God was showing that throughout the Old Testament, but only through faith in Jesus Christ, which we also see in the Old Testament. And faith in his work, his work on the cross and his resurrection, so that now that man can be reconciled to God. The resurrection is what the Apostle Paul told the church is that which is of the first importance. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and, 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as first importance what I have received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. That is the gospel the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that resurrection has sealed our justification, our pardon or forgiveness for sin. The promise of eternal life is based upon the principle of Christ's righteousness being imputed, being given to us on our behalf by grace alone, through faith alone. Not in consideration of any of our works of righteousness, for we have none, but solely through faith alone and Christ alone as our substitutionary atoning Savior as he atoned for our sins on the cross. And so we put our faith in him alone. He is our perfect righteousness. And that brings us peace. That gives us favor with God. That gives us reconciliation with God and reconciliation to each other and redemption and adoption into his family brought into his kingdom as sons, as co-heirs with, with Christ. And it secures every blessing and every other blessing needed for, for throughout time and eternity. And this is what we believe at Sovereign Grace Church. And this is why the cross and his resurrection is, was appointed to him by our sovereign God in order to bring about the salvation of his people. And this is the center of Christianity. 
remove any of that, you do not have Christianity. You don't have the gospel. You don't even have Christ. You have something made up by man, which is a poor substitute of the gospel. This Sunday, and all Sundays, even though that this Sunday is Resurrection Day, every Sunday is Resurrection Day. We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. So that even when we come to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're talking about a bunch of false teachers, we can still understand within that strong language of confronting false teachers at the very core as the church, we still rejoice in the resurrection of our Savior. Someone told me this week, and I'm still, I'm still contemplating it, and he said, you know, it's a whole lot easier to celebrate the resurrection of Christ one day a year than it is to remember and celebrate the resurrection every single day. And isn't that the truth? How much harder it is for us to remember and apply the resurrection in September or January or June. But let's try tomorrow. It's not just a one-day thing. But as Christians, we rejoice in it, and our lives are applied within the resurrection each and every day. And so God in his mercy built into the calendar for us that every time we gather on Sunday, we celebrate the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Not just one day, but every day. One of the very first heresies and lies that the church faced that they had to contend with was the cover-up of the resurrection. The Pharisees spread the rumor that the disciples just stole the body and took it away and somehow overcame this guard, this guard of Roman soldiers. Later, false teachers who infiltrated the church would use various ways to deny the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, as if it was unnecessary because if Jesus is really God, then can God really die? So he was just in a spiritual sense and did not die in a bodily sense. Now, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, he isn't exactly telling us that these false teachers are denying the resurrection, but what he says about them in this passage this morning, I bet they're not far from it, if not already there. So let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in the second part of chapter 10. Verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained for greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. 
they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by the storm. For, they, for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, so that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Happy Resurrection Day. <laughs> and that is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. When you read all of chapter 2 together, you can really feel the weight, I'm sure you felt it even just reading half of it, the weight of the seriousness of the situation within the church. You can hear Peter's concern, you can hear his urgency for the church, for the people of God. But is Peter being too harsh? Is he being judgmental? Is he just being petty with small things, little doctrines that don't really matter? Is he being intolerant? Is he being unloving and uncompassionate, uncharitable? And, and certainly, if you read this completely out of context, then yes, Peter can sound like a monster. He doesn't hold back, nor does he turn down the heat. He says they're blaspheming three times. They're animals that need to be destroyed. They will suffer for their wrongdoing, the wages of their wrong. They're full of adultery and sin and greed. They are accursed children. He says, for it would have been better for them to have never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. But yet in context, this is a man, Peter, as we've already determined, is at the end of his life, he is fighting and waging a war for truth, for purity in the body of Christ. Remember his desire, right? This is the theme of, of, of 2 Peter. The, his desire is for them to grow in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is a shepherd who sees these wolves hunting the flock openly in the daylight. Wolves that have no fear and they have no regard for life. He doesn't have time to be soft. He doesn't have time to cuddle and try to understand why wolves are really wolves and why they're seething to destroy the sheep. But instead, 
He stands in front of the sheep. And he defends the sheep, even if the sheep don't like it. Nobody likes violence and nobody wants violence, or at least most people don't. It is an unfortunate reality living in a fallen world. But if your life is at stake, and if your life is on the line, you betcha you want violence to intercede on your behalf. Peter's not advocating violence here. And neither am I. But he is employing some strong words here. Because these are wolves that are seeking to harm the, tr- the church and destroy the church And most importantly, truth is at stake. The gospel is at stake. The literal resurrection, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is at stake. It was being distorted. Truth about the deity of Christ and the gospel was twisted for shameful gain, and he could not let that happen. And neither should we. For example... A tweet that came this week from a prominent pastor of a well-known historic church said this. The meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you are a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Heresy! It sounds good to the enticed, right? To the unsteady souls, that sounds enticing. Yes, let's serve people, but serving people does not save you, only through the blood of Christ. That's what we're contending with. What's more transcendent than the resurrection of Christ? You? That's what he's saying. You. All right, I got to move on. This is not my notes. But that fires me up. False teaching and false teachers are a reality. And they desire to creep into the church, and it's been happening for centuries all over the globe, and even today. And even though we may be a small church, and albeit a healthy church, a biblical church, a faithful church, we're striving to do these things and be this way, we must be careful and discerning because all around us are influences, teachers, scholars, pastors, preachers, so-called pastors and preachers here locally and on the internet that are playing out false teachers. I promise you there is some good news today. In our passage this morning, Peter lays out three main things about these false teachers. He says they are arrogant. He lays out for you their lifestyle. And then he tells us and shows us their outcome. But what I want to contend with you, and I think what Peter is in a a way doing here, is he's showing us a comparison between these guys and Jesus. And he is saying to us that these guys are bankrupt, but Christ is way better. So first, let us consider the arrogance of these false teachers and what she says here, which arrogance means they have an inflated view of their importance, their prestige, their abilities, their talents, and so they act in that arrogance. They're not acting in secret, nor are they in fear or remorse, which is just as Peter had described 
for them here in these beginning verses. Verse 10, they despised authority at the beginning of verse 10. And the second half where we started, they were despising authority, yet they were bold and willful against authority. That is the authority of God, the authority of Jesus Christ, the authority of the Word of God. And they are so bold. What do they do? They openly blaspheme and they don't tremble. It's like the dude we just read the tweet. He tweets that garbage out and he doesn't even tremble at the garbage that he just spread to the world. Claiming to be a Christian and a pastor and a teacher. And they don't tremble. And Peter, he describes their, bla uh, their boldness here and their blaspheme here in verse 10 as that they blaspheme the glorious ones, which in verse 11, which most likely means in context, he's talking about the glorious ones, evil angels. And then they're not glorious because they are good, but they are glorious because God had created them. So false teachers here, they blaspheme and they don't tremble, these glorious ones. They had no problem condemning evil angels and in their arrogance, these false teachers, what they are doing, they are doing, as verse 11 says, they are doing something that not even the good angels will do. These good angels who are greater in power and might, they don't even pronounce blasphemous judgments against them. The angels don't even venture to do what they are doing, to declare some fate to the demons. In Jude... The archangel Michael, he doesn't even condemn Satan, but he says, I'm going to leave that to God. God will do a better job, that's why. And they didn't tremble before them. False teachers think that they have the authority not only to judge the glorious beings, but also to speak abusively to them. Mocking demons, mocking Satan, rebuking them, casting them out of people and persons because they have the gift. And they have the authority to do so. The problem is the Bible, which is always their biggest problem, the Scripture. But enough about that. There's a lot, there's a lot of mystery in those verses, but look at verse 12. He compares them to wild animals. Irrational creatures, animals, creatures of, of instinct. You know, when I read this verse, I thought of the dog or the raccoon who has rabies. We don't deal with that too much anymore, thankfully. But rabies, what it does, it, it attacks the, the brainstem of an animal and it makes them go crazy. Crazy in the sense where they, would, they will actually attack those they know, right? You've seen the movie Old Yeller, and if you haven't, have a good cry this afternoon. They make the animals go crazy, and they make the attack no matter how big it is. If an animal attacks a human, that animal must be and needs to be destroyed. If an animal is indiscriminately attacking other animals, then it must be destroyed. This isn't a pleasant picture, but this is a reality of living in a fractured world, a fractured creation, a creation that groans under the curse of sin. So why does Scripture then use this kind of language to compare these false teachers, this kind of descriptive language that compares them to dangerous wild animals? Well, the reason is, is because they are blaspheming about matters that they are ignorant about. Such as like when animals, when their guide is corrupted, right, has 
What has it done? It's corrupted their, their instinct and their emotions and their feelings. These teachers, as well, are guided in the same way. To do what is instinctual, to do what is emotional, to do what feels good and feels right without any guide of knowledge or truth to guide them on or to center them on. And this includes their ignorance of the demons as well as everything else. The ignorance and arrogance of false teachers have a similar fate then of such animals. God's judgment will be upon them and it will be severe. To those who dilute the truth, who change the truth, who manipulate the truth, who deny the truth, who arrogantly blaspheme, will be destroyed. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so in verse 13, they've earned the wages of their destruction. Yet, let us compare the false teachers who act in their arrogance to now Jesus Christ, who in his life displayed humility and compassion and mercy and grace and love. Jesus was nothing close to these arrogant. He did not live an exaggerated life boasting of his own accomplishments. Let me show you a few ways. Unlike the false teachers, Jesus exemplified humility. As the Apostle Paul said, uh, humility is in the mind of Christ. It is the mind of Christ. And that though he is God, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility in the incarnation, Christ becoming man. To condescend God becoming man, to take on flesh becoming man and being humble to the point of being a substitute to die on the cross for sinners like us. In Luke chapter 7, we see Jesus, he saw a funeral of a, of a man. And then he sees this widowed woman who had no one else in her life after her son had passed. And his funeral's going down the road, and she is weeping, and Jesus sees this, and Jesus does what? Does he turn and walk away? No, he has compassion on her. And he tells her not to weep, and then he raises this man from the dead. Like we're in the middle of a funeral procession, and here comes Jesus, and he raises this man from the dead, and he gives him back to his mother. Compassion for the broken, compassion for the wounded by the fall, led to Jesus resurrecting this man from the dead. That tells us a lot about our God. That tells us a lot about our Savior and His compassion toward rescuing His people from sin and death. In Hebrews chapter 2, we hear why Jesus had come in the flesh. He came to become the perfect sacrifice, and he had to be like us in the flesh to destroy the power of sin, death, 
and the devil. Hebrews 2, 14, 15. But in verse 17, he says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servant of service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In mercy, in mercy, in the service of God, Christ propitiated the sins of his people, which means as Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God toward his people was absorbed by him and was taken away so that it was completely satisfied. That's why we just sang this morning, the wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus Christ is merciful. In John chapter 1, the greatest introduction of all introductions of all time. Again, he says in verse 14 about his uh, incarnation, and the word became flesh, Jesus, right? The word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace is that unmerited and undeserved and yet is given freely by God. And this is what John does throughout his gospel. He shows God's grace throughout his gospel over and over again. That the point of Christ's coming is to do what? To show grace and truth. I love how grace is coupled with truth here. Because false teachers, many want to promote grace. They want to give grace, but it's always at the expense of truth, but not Jesus. Grace always comes with truth. It always comes with truth. And the last one I want you to see is that Jesus is how Jesus loves us. And of course, absolutely, we can turn to John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, but I want us to get closer, and that is to go to John 13, where before Jesus goes to the cross, he demonstrates his personal love to his people, to his disciples, by washing their feet. He humbles himself. This is a humble act to wash someone's feet. That is an act of humility, but John prefaces the scene in this in verse 1. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come, means he's about to die, to depart from this world to his Father, having loved his own, were in the world. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John, it is a personal note writing there, this is how Jesus loved them. Jesus loved his disciples. Jesus loved his own. He loves his people and loves them for his glory. And he willingly went to the cross to die for them so that sinners like you and sinners certainly like me can be reconciled to God. But false teachers, they are nowhere near like Christ. They are arrogant, boastful, prideful. They deny the truth. Certainly Christ is way better. Is there, no, is there 
no wonder then, and we're only in point one, no wonder then that Peter spoke the way he did when seeing the heresy that these false teachers were bringing in to defile the gospel that he spoke the way he did. Second Peter, he continues here by pointing out the lifestyles of these false teachers. We're not going to spend too much, long, too much on this point, but the, the, the lifestyles of these false teachers we talked about back earlier in verses 1 through 3, but look at verse 13. He says, they take pleasure in reveling in the daytime. They revel in their deceptions all the while feasting with you. Verse 14, their eyes are full of adultery, insatiable for sin, meaning their desire for sin cannot be satisfied. Sin begats more and more sin. They have hearts trained for greed, completely forsaking the right way. And here's what we need to see about these guys. First, they had no shame in showing their immoral behavior in the daylight. They revel, which means they party. They rejoice in their deceptions. And why? Because they're arrogant and they're ignorant. And literally, they fear no one and nothing. They're like the politician who thinks that they can get away with everything because nothing ever happens to them. Many false teachers have this same attitude of living in open, blatant sin and still justifying their sin. And their followers willingly justify their sin and willingly justify it by saying, he has a gift. She is anointed. Who am I to be the judge? No one's perfect. Look at, look at all that they do and all the good that they do. Which also shows us this, that their lifestyles are morally and ethically filthy. And we're not talking about just struggling with sin and temptation and repenting. We're, we're talking about people who are headlong into sin, willingly desiring it, pursuing it, and then enticing others to participate in the same sin. The sins in particular, the prominent ones named here, is adultery and greed. Gross immorality that should disgust the church. And the example of the greed, that greed that is brought up is Balaam the prophet from Numbers. Balaam is a good example because here is a prophet of, of God who is enticed by, by a lot of money to prophesy against God's people on behalf of a wicked pagan king, Balak. He takes the money and on his way, riding the donkey to curse God's people, the Lord puts an angel right in front of the donkey. And the donkey stops. This is a great story, by the way, if you've never read it. Balaam, he can't see the angel, and he begins to beat the donkey. Come on, donkey, let's go. We got people to see and places to, to be and things to do. And the donkey just stops, and he continues to take the beating, and mercifully then the donkey turns and speaks to Balaam and says, my paraphrase, can't you see I'm saving your life here? And when Balaam looks up, he sees the angel with his sword drawn ready to slay him if he takes one step further. Now, the point here is how the greed and love of money corrupted the prophet. And like false teachers in the church, 
They love their comforts. They love their popularity, their celebrity, their fame, and all that those things afford them. So rather than caring for the most vulnerable, they use them to satisfy their own appetites for the flesh. Remember, these are people who call themselves teachers. And they move within the church, and they look like uh, Christians, and they, while teaching lies to cover their immorality. How disturbing and wicked these false teachers are. Third, we see about them that they are living among the brothers and sisters of the church while eating with them as if nothing is wrong. Think of the level of hypocrisy to eat with those that you are deceiving and stealing from. And lastly, these false teachers, their consciences were so numb that they found their immorality not with disgust, but with pleasure. They reveled in it. They delighted more in their sin than delighting in Christ. They believed their sin was more noble than Christ himself. So the question is, why would anyone follow such immoral, bankrupt teachers? Well, it tells us. Because they are enticed by their flesh. If they can do it, why can't I? But just like before, compare the lifestyles of these false teachers to the lifestyles to our true teacher, Jesus Christ. Jesus came in humility. We we spoke of that. He condescended in human flesh. He was born in a manger to a humble girl, Mary, and his earthly father was a carpenter. He grew up as a carpenter's son from the infamous town of Nazareth. No lavish lifestyle, no celebrity, no fame. And unlike false teachers who preyed upon people, Jesus cares for his people. He says in 1 Peter chapter 5, we're exhorted to, to cast all of our anxieties upon Christ because he cares for you and he takes pleasure in caring for his people. In Jesus' lifestyle in every way, was unlike these false teachers. He was perfect, and he was sinless. In 1 Peter 2, verse 22, Jesus set up as our our example of endurance through suffering and through persecution, and yet he says, he says, Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And he was quoting from Isaiah 53, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 We made reference to this verse earlier. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He knew no sin and yet he took on upon himself our sin on the cross. Sinless. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize us with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we were, yet without sin. And John, 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 
There is no sin in Christ. So consider the lifestyles. And and what is very clear here is that Christ, again, is way better than anything that they have ever presented or put forth to the church as false teachers in their lifestyles. Consider their lifestyles and consider the lifestyle of Christ. Which one do you want to follow? And lastly, Peter points out the outcome of false teachers from chapter 2, and that is that they will be judged. In verse 17, the punishment is quite severe. For, the, for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And forgive me for speaking maybe a little crass, but he means here there is a special place in hell for them. That's what that means. And why? Because they're arrogant. And they're ignorant in what they do. Their lifestyles are, are morally bankrupt. And they promote deadly teaching. They claim to be teaching life and health and prosperity and purity and virtue and charity and justice and goodness. But they are waterless springs and myths driven by the storm. Those that drink from them may think that they're getting good living water from Jesus. But soon they find out that these are not living waters but deadly waters, drinking sand. And they'll soon find out how thirsty they really are. These false teachers, they may sound good. They speak well. They're confident. And with Scripture sprinkled in so that the weak, the unsteadied soul believe what they must know they're talking about. They must know what they're talking about. Look how smart they are. Look how they they speak. They look like me. They're just like me. Of course, of course we should cast out demons from our houses. Of course we should cast them out because they're one one, maybe one hiding in my butter dish. If Jesus is alive and rose from the dead, then then of course his resurrection means, means me too. I'm going to be healthy and I'm going to be prosperous. And they look clearly anointed. And if they can live by grace and sin, then surely I can live according to my own desires and to my sin. Because after all, we live under grace, not the law, right? How many of y'all heard that before? This is how the weak are enticed by their flesh, according to verse 18. But the real danger is in verse 19. And that is these false teachers promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, that that is he who is enslaved. He is enslaved. They offer heresy. Why, they themselves are slaves of their own depravity. I'll go ahead and make one comparison now because here we are. False teachers will say that they can help you. They will say that they can set you free. They will say that they alone know the truth and that you need them according to God's word, though. But according to God's word, no one can set you free but Jesus Christ alone. They will always tell you that that you need them. Because if the Son, though, has set you free, you will be free indeed. You see, the freedom we have in Christ is the exact opposite of what false teachers offer. 
Christ gives freedom from sin, not to continue in the slavery to sin in the corrupt world. He redeems us from our bankrupt lifestyles, not to continue in them. And this is why the illustrations of waterless springs is, is, is so important. It should be so striking to, to us because Jesus is the one who gives living water. And that when you drink from him, this living water, he says, you will never thirst again. We may be tempted to go back to these waterless springs and, and drink the bitter waters or the sand that's empty, but those who have tasted and seen will come back to it. But what they teach is so deadly. Because when you look at verses 20 through 22, whether describing false teachers or describing those who he has, in, those false teachers have enticed to apostasy, that means leaving the church, quitting Christianity, whatever it may be, or believing heresy, this dangerous because once someone embraces the gospel and turns back, it is even harder to reclaim them afresh to the truth. However, these are not Christians who lose their salvation, those do not exist. But whether these are those who, who are the seeds scattered on shallow soil, who sprang up quickly, and when the heat comes and they die off because they do not have roots, meaning they were never believers in the first place. And to end this morning, let's consider Jesus who is way better. Who gives promises freedom and gives freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from death. He gives us living water where we thirst no more. Consider the outcome of Jesus' life. Freedom, redemption, salvation, and hope. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Our salvation is not just for now, but his work on the cross has secured our eternal inheritance and his resurrection precedes the resurrection of his own people from the dead when he returns. For all the dead in Christ shall rise. The Apostle Paul faced false teaching in regards to the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Meaning people were infiltrating saying there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. When you die, you die. You're not going to resurrect from the dead. But he says, verse 13, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, meaning in Christ, those who are in Christ, Christians won't be resurrected from the dead, then that means that Christ hasn't been resurrected hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Meaning we're just wasting our time, brothers and sisters. We might as well just talk about Easter bunnies and, and, and eggs and have jelly beans together and then go eat lunch together. We're just wasting our time. But Christ is raised from the dead. Our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. He goes on in verse 15. We're not there yet. Verse 15. When when we are even found to be misrepresenting God, meaning, meaning Paul, who's been preaching Christ raised from the dead, because we testify to you that Christ is raised, that Christ is raised, whom he did not raise it if it is true that the dead are not raised. 
For if the, the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Eat, drink, and be merry. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's a crushing blow. If in Christ we have no hope, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. But in fact, here's the good news, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by death one, as by a man came death, a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Christ has risen from the dead. Amen. And if Christ has been raised, then brothers and sisters, our faith is real. And our faith is not in vain. And our faith is not just for this life alone, but our faith is also for our future hope when Christ returns. Verse 51 of, of the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Listen to this. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this imperishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Verse 54, when the perishable put on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, you're, that in your work, in your labor, it is not in vain. Christ is alive. He is raised from the dead, brothers and sisters, and our hope is not just here, but our hope is when he returns and we all will be made new, new resurrected bodies. And we will sing that great song, O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ. Again, do we wonder why Peter spoke so strong now against these false teachers? Because what they teach is like eating Oreo cookies. It tastes good, but it's going to have its effects after a while. Compared to the feast, the glorious meal of the gospel, and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ setting set before you. Because Jesus Christ is far better. False teachers' outcome is death, and they promote death. But Jesus gives life. He gives forgiveness. He gives sanctification and glorification. 
And this is why the resurrection, brothers and sisters, isn't just for one day celebration, but it applies to each of our days as we gather every Sunday to rejoice together and that we will rejoice for all eternity. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, he will be exalted as we await the one day when he returns and we all shall rise again. And so may we close with this, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all God's people say, and amen.